passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has got you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. <laughs> get it? With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Big thanks to NASCAR for sponsoring this episode of Pass Gas. Netflix's newest docuseries, NASCAR Full Speed, follows drivers as they battle for one of the biggest titles in all of motorsports during the 2023 NASCAR playoffs. Get an in-depth look at who these drivers are off the track and how they and their teams navigate the physical, mental, and emotional challenges of competing for a championship at the world's highest level of stock car racing. After all, the race to the finish is just the beginning. Watch NASCAR full speed on Netflix to catch up on the characters, competition, and chaos that define the 2023 championship before NASCAR heads to Atlanta this Sunday, February 25th at 3 p.m. Eastern Time on Fox. April 5th, 2020, the first wave of COVID-19 was sweeping the globe, changing the way we lived, worked, and played forever. In the sporting world, all events had been canceled from the NBA to Major League Baseball, and auto racing was no exception. And yet, paradoxically, on this sunny April day in Melbourne, Australia, thousands of people were gathered for a Formula One race on the Albert Park circuit. F1 drivers Charles Leclerc Lando Norris, Alex Albon, George Russell, Antonio Giovinazzi, and Nicholas Latifi, among others, were lined up and ready to race. As the contest got underway, it was clear that there had been a few tweaks to the usual F1 procedures. For one, the drivers had all been given the same exact car to race, giving no driver a competitive advantage. Leclerc got out to an early lead, as behind him, the pack descended into chaos as Alex Albon spun out, causing a multi-car pileup. Then, things got weird. The crash cars seemingly blinked in and out of existence, undamaged as they rejoined the track. Separate from the pileup, Lando Norris' car had failed to start at all. And in the middle of the pack, there was a racer you'd likely never heard of named Ben Stokes, who was not an F1 driver at all, but a cricket world champion. If you haven't already guessed, this entire event was virtual. The drivers were sitting at home in simulation rigs, scattered across the globe. The thousands of fans were virtual. In fact, millions had tuned in to watch the live stream. While the images from the virtual version of Albert Park were incredibly sharp, the lines were becoming increasingly blurred between real life and virtual racing. And even though we're talking about the history of racing games on this podcast, calling these experiences games might not be doing them justice. As we discuss the past and present of racing games, today we're also going to talk about the future of racing itself. For years, real-life racing has influenced racing games. But now, is it possible that games could influence real life? What's possible now, and what comes next? That's today on Past Gas 3D 2020, the podcast simulator. 
brought to you by Donut Games. Best ass podcast. It's about cars. It's not about sports. Hell yeah. Yeah, dude. Uh, yeah, dude. Uh, that's <laughs> what I'm talking about, dude. Uh, welcome to Past Gas. I'm your host, uh, Nolan Sykes, as always, joined by my two co-hosts, the one very energetic, James Pumphrey. Hello! <laughs> <laughs> and that chuckle you hear is my other co-host, Joe Weber. Let's go! <laughs> yeah. Let's go! Let's go! Let's go! Oh, God. I love that. Yeah. I love that everyone says, let's go now. Everyone says it. It lets people know that I'm pumped about what I'm about to do. Yeah. And it's like, when, if, would people know whether to go or not if you hadn't said it? <laughs> totally. Totally, dude. And you asked what I'm about to do. I'm about to host a fug out of this PK stuff <laughs> about video gangs. <laughs> 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 yeah, so today we're talking, we're going to get into the uh, the late 2000s to today uh, in the timeline of racing games, talk about the, the PS3, the Xbox 360, we're going to talk about Forza, then we're going to get into some sim racing, my my preferred racing as of right now. Let's, uh, let's get into it. I let's go! <laughs> <laughs> By the 2000s, racing games had developed as much in 20 years as cars themselves had in a century. Back in the 80s, OutRun was the most popular racing game at the arcade, but its relationship to the actual driving experience uh, was still incredibly distant. You could have spent an entire summer of 86 pumping quarters into all the racing games in the arcade, but if you got behind the wheel of a real car, you probably wouldn't even be able to put, in, put it in gear. By the 2000s though, Games in real life driving were getting so much closer and car companies were starting to see the potential of a deep collaboration with gaming developers. In 2008, Nissan and Sony basically teamed up to form the GT Academy, an international contest and television show that let players compete for the opportunity to make the jump from the virtual to reality and become a real life race car driver by winning tournaments in the Gran Turismo driving simulator. The first stages were held virtually as thousands of players, including myself, competed in events across the globe. You were in this? I mean, yeah, you could just do it. There was like preliminary rounds that uh, I wasn't nearly good enough to even advance from like the first round. So thousands of people did this all over. So from there, from, from those preliminary events, the winners of the various national finals traveled to Europe, trained in real-life Nissans at a racing school held at Silverstone over there in Britain. Lucas Ordonez, a Spanish driver, was the winner of the first season and would go on to play second at Le Mans in the LMP2 class. And since then... That's amazing. Yeah, that really is. Since then, multiple professional drivers have emerged from the program competing in Formula 2, Super GT, and various endurance series across the globe. That's incredible. Again, the line between racing games and real life was being blurred. Sure, it was a leap to go from being amazing at a game to physically controlling a real car, and many amazing gamers, like myself, simply weren't up to the physical demands of real racing. But GT Academy proved that the leap was not just possible, but repeatable. So, how do we get to the point where gamers were not just learning to play, but learning how to drive. To do that, we've got to put it in reverse gear to the beginning of the 2000s at the dawn of the all-out AAA racing game war between Sony and Microsoft, two of the 
biggest tech companies on earth. And I just want to reiterate, I did not even make it to like the tournament stage. Okay. I don't want to make it sound like I was a part of the GT Academy. Well, that's weird because when we weren't filming, you told us that you won the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. You said that you, you said that your name was Lucas Ordonez. Well, my, my trophy lives in Canada. Oh, okay. It goes to another school. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in the last episode, we talked about Sony PlayStation's Gran Turismo series, an incredibly popular franchise that's now been around for over 20 years. But back in 2001, PlayStation saw their console dominance challenged as Microsoft's brand new Xbox console hit store shelves. The Xbox was an instant hit, selling over 24 million absolute units in its first five years. <laughs> they were absolute units. They were fig- they were freaking honkers. Yeah, they are big old dong-dong honkers. <laughs> <laughs> While Gran Turismo was Sony's largest franchise, Xbox's leading title was not a racer, but a sci-fi first-person shooter called Halo. Halo receives an honorable pass gas mention due to its inclusion of the Warthog, a four-wheel drive hydrogen-powered buggy built of ballistic polycarbonate titanium and carbon nanotube with a machine gun turret mounted in the back. In 2018, a phone technician named Bryant Haverkamp actually (laughs) built a real-life Warthog minus the machine gun turret, proving once again that games were starting to influence real life as much as the other way around. Beyond the success of Halo, a top priority for Microsoft was developing products to directly compete with PlayStation titles. Since the best-selling PlayStation franchise was Gran Turismo, Xbox had a clear mandate to create a simulator-style racing game. But, as you remember, the development of the first Gran Turismo was a monumental task for designer Kazunori Yamauchi and his team, taking five years from start to finish. They slept under their desks. Yeah, that was rough. Microsoft didn't have that kind of time. But on the other hand, they had the advantage of being second to the scene where Kazunori had to dream up Gran Turismo from scratch. The Japanese racing monolith now provided a clear template for the American Microsoft team to imitate. The resulting game would be titled Forza Motorsport. In Italian, Forza translates to strength. So next time you're in Italy and you eat too much pizza, remember to ask for a maximum Forza Pepto-Bismol. Such a Tommy (laughs) joke. (laughs) To develop the game, Microsoft created a new division called Turn 10, based in Redmond, Washington, solely dedicated to the development of Forza. Much of the Forza staff came from Project Gotham Racing, an Xbox launch title that had sold well, but which GameSpot described as less a racing game than a Tony Hawk's pro skater with cars instead of skateboards. And like Tony Hawk, the game required you to pull off combos that awarded kudos points. I always hated that word, kudos. Yeah. The only good kudos are those kudos bars. Don't. No, they're not. Those are the worst kudos. What? I mean, if you if you had a choice between a kudos bar and a chewy bar, would you still pick mm. a kudos? Kudos, kudos bar is definitely leans on the candy bar spectrum of of a bar, mm. whereas a chewy bar is more of a granola bar. It's just like a worse candy bar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just eat a candy bar then. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Forza's development kicked off in 2002 and it was overseen by the head of Turn 10 Studio, Dan Greenewalt. Greenewalt found out early that the simulator was the easy part. The challenge was to add fun elements to the game without going as far as kudos points. He and his team looked for ways to make the game more 
gamey. Hiring a designer from Nintendo's Pokemon team and having his team play, in his words, a lot of Animal Crossing and Diablo 2. Greenwald was shameless about wanting to create an addictive game. I wanted to create a game that infected people. We weren't afraid! (laughs) (laughs) So, what was Greenwald's secret addictive ingredient for Forza? If you guess cocaine, you're wrong. Like Pokemon and Animal Crossing, the name of the game was collectability. Mm. In Greenwald's words, Forza was not just a car game, but a car collecting game. So this kind of, we talked about this a little bit last episode, but it does feel different like Forza Forza and Gran Turismo because Gran Turismo you really have to earn stuff. Uh-huh. Forza you just kind of like get gifted every race you get gifted a car and stuff. It's still rewarding because you get to you know have a million cars, yeah. but it doesn't feel earned as much. It yeah, I totally agree, especially with like later installments of like the Forza of the sorry of the Horizon uh yeah. spinoff is like they just give you a ton of money up front and you're. You're getting cars all the time. You're winning cars. It, it's like a, a celebration of cars, basically. Uh, I haven't played a, a recent Gran Turismo title, so I can't really speak on that. But uh, definitely feels that the the collectability, now that I know that makes a lot of sense for what I know about the Forza franchise. Forza's launch also placed a big emphasis on the online experience with 1,400 active leaderboards for various combinations of car classes and tracks. Xbox Live had launched in 2002 and had become a crucial part of Microsoft's marketing strategy as gamers increasingly wanted opportunities to compete against human opponents. Xbox had smartly found their niche, while PlayStation, for its part, didn't launch their own online service until 2006. And it sucks. In addition to the online experience, Microsoft took a shot directly across Gran Turismo's polygonal bow with an ambitious new physics engine. They claim that every piece of the engine created its own independent inertia dependent on how fast it was spinning. Additionally, every car had its own drag coefficient. And if you dented it, the coefficient would change proportionally, changing the handling of the car. That's super cool, and I didn't know that. To handle these various features, the Forza team quickly ballooned from an initial 20 people to a staff of 150 by 2005. Clearly, Microsoft was putting all of their financial Forza Remember, it means strength into their challenge (laughs) to Gran Turismo's dominance. The strain showed as Forza was delayed three times. As they worked to put out the first game in their franchise, Sony had just released the fourth Gran Turismo title for PlayStation 2. It was the gaming franchise equivalent of starting a race three laps behind. Gran Turismo 4 is the one I've probably played the most. It's so good. I love that one. The delays also caused the first Forza Motorsports to be awkwardly timed. When it finally came out the spring of 2005, Microsoft's next-gen console, the Xbox 360, was only six months out from its own release. The game performed solidly but fell short of Gran Turismo numbers, selling several hundred thousand copies in its first month of release. As with real-world automobiles, there were always weird publicity stunts around the releases of big video games, and Forza Motorsport was no different. Popular Science took six cars from the game, ranging from the Volkswagen Golf R32 James to a Porsche Carrera GT, and had Le Mans driver Gunnar Jeanette uh, race the real-life versions of the car against RJ Devara, a journalist and actor best known for portraying Danny Yamato in the original Fast and the Furious. 
Again, returning to today's theme of art imitating life, the character of Danny is seen in the movie playing Gran Turismo on a screen in his Honda <laughs> EJ Civic immediately before a real-life race against Vin Diesel. I do remember that now. Jeanette and Devara spent a day racing in the game before turning to the real track. Just like in the movie. Yeah. Notably, in the virtual world, Joe, uh, Devara had a 16-second spread while driving his various cars while on the track... All of his times were within a second of each other. Very interesting. Much of this was attributed to the lack of physical fear in Forza. Without a physiological threat of crashing, Devara felt free to push the high-performance car harder in the virtual world, which makes a lot of sense. Uh, it's an interesting difference that suggests that even if the games were totally realistic in appearance, since the actual stakes were different, they couldn't create the same experience. Side note, the Popular Science article also pointed out that the U.S. military deals with a similar issue in its combat simulators. Trainees know it's not real, and to compensate, they often use a shock belt to create a physical consequence of failure. That's crazy. That's crazy. That's brazy, dude. That's brazy. <laughs> That's brazy. Uh, while Forza proved that Microsoft was now a contender, Gran Turismo was still the franchise to beat. For example, while Forza offered an impressive 230 cars, Gran Turismo 4 had over 700. I can't even name 700 cars. No, me neither. Oh, you like cars? Name all the cars then. Name 700 of them. These included ridiculous one-offs like the one horsepower 1886 Daimler motor carriage, uh, uh -huh. which YouTuber Zocker1990 used to drive a five-hour lap around the Nürburgring <laughs> and post on YouTube. Very nice. Good, good work, Zocker. <laughs> uh, there's also Jay Leno's Blastoline special, better known as the tank car, which was a big deal uh, when I was a kid. The engine alone in that car weighs as much as a Volkswagen Beetle. Then there's the aforementioned Nike One 2022, which comes out in two years. Hell yeah. A all-wheel drive electric concept car designed by Phil Frank of Nike. Apparently, the concept for the Nike One 2022 was that you drive the, to drive the car, you have to wear a generator suit that measures your physical fitness levels and you can only reach top speed in the car <laughs> for peak physical condition. It's like a Fitbit suit. Yeah. And we should note that while the first Forza didn't offer quite as whimsical a garage as GT4, it did have some interesting concepts, including one of my personal favorites, the Chrysler ME412, a turbocharged Mercedes V12, the Audi Infineon R8, a five-time Le Mans champion, and a 1954 Mercedes Goldwing Coupe. It's also important to keep things in perspective and note that even if Forza's 230 cars were dwarfed by Gran Turismo's 700 plus, when the original Need for Speed had dropped just a decade prior in 1994, that game only offered eight cars. Many games of the 90s didn't even give you a choice of cars at all. On top of all that, Forza and Gran Turismo were using increasingly advanced techniques to add real life cars into the game, including the increased use of laser scanning to get even more accurate measurements. The next sleep for the two franchises would be enabled by the release of the so-called seventh generation of video game consoles, represented Ooh. by the PlayStation 3, the yeah, Xbox baby. 360, and to a lesser extent, at least for racing games, the Nintendo Wii. Excite Truck, excuse me, Excite Truck was on the Nintendo Wii. Great racing game. <laughs> Note that the 360 was only the second Xbox ever made. The moniker 360 was a clever way to avoid marketing an Xbox 2 against a more advanced sounding PlayStation 3. I mean, we all saw through that. We saw through that, right? Well, then they, they, they called the next one 1. 
yeah. then the next one is Xbox Series One or something like. I don't even know what it's called. The new, yeah. the one that's coming out. Xbone. That's how I know I'm old. Is that I don't know the names of the consoles anymore. You're still in your twenties. So I know, but I'm not a kid anymore. <laughs> you're a baby. Yeah, you're, you're a baby, like... Nolan. I'm... Look, we're gonna man. get in trouble for giving you a I'm job. I'm not a baby. <laughs> At this point, video game consoles no longer force programmers to make any sort of compromise in terms of computational power. That's the power of computing. In fact, by two, try <laughs> in fact, by 2007, <laughs> consoles represented a shocking 25% of Earth's total computing power. Was it right that all that processing power was being used on video games and not mapping the human genome? Maybe not. But it led to some incredible games. Microsoft had the first big title of the new era with, you guessed it, Forza 2. Let's go! <laughs> oh, God. Let's go! Let's go! The second Forza launched in 2007 for the Xbox 360 and took immediate advantage of the jump in computational power. You could customize your car with as many as 1,000 layers of custom graphics. Hell yeah. We should wow. make a video of us putting all 1,000. Yeah, make them tiny, tiny, tiny. Yeah. The game included accurate to the inch models of tracks like Silverstone, Laguna Seca, and Sebring. Microsoft also dedicated an entire research studio to the development of something they called Drivatar AI, which took advantage of cloud computing to refine the AI of computer opponents. If you've ever raced against computers and noticed that they drive robotically, the Drivatar system was designed to counteract that. By processing the data of real-life players, the system basically taught computers how to drive more like humans. After you put in enough laps, the system generated your own Drivatar that would drive specifically like you, which is pretty cool but also creepy uh ars technica has a really great video in their war stories series about the development of the drivatar system if you want to know more about that their whole war stories video uh all of them are, are excellent love ars technica another notable feature of both gran turismo and forza 2 was the release of racing wheel peripherals to coincide with their Ooh. respective games hitting the market Baby. in a way the wheels saw racing games come full circle Pun absolutely intended. Let's go! It's a wheel. Let's go! All the way back to the arcade days of the 70s and 80s, when even the most basic black and white games like Grand Track and Speed Race boasted wheels and pedals as part of their arcade cabinets. Of course, there was a twist. <gasps> back in the early days of racing, these games had to provide wheels because it was the only realistic part of the game. At the end of the day, you were still essentially racing a blip around a Pac-Man track. In the late 2000s, these wheels were the last piece in an immersive puzzle of home console gaming. Sony and Microsoft were both betting that gamers were ready to shell out 150 bucks for that extra layer of immersion. Logitech had been building racing wheels since the 90s. Its wheel for the PlayStation 3, the Logitech Driving Force GT, offered forced feedback, 900-degree steering, both paddle shifters and a sequential gear shift, and a footboard with accelerator and brake pedals. Logitech also offered a more premium model in 2010, the Logitech G27, with a leather-wrapped steering wheel and stainless okay. steel pedals, including a clutch. That's what I've got right now, baby, the G27. These things sell for like $700 on eBay because the version that came after is just not as good, and people really want these ones, but I'm holding on Whoa. to it. Wow. You'd sell that. Nah, yeah, dude. you'd sell that. You need the money. A company with the unfortunate name of Thrustmaster... <laughs> 
<laughs> had actually been the first to make a clutch pedal racing wheel in 2005. Microsoft's entry, the Xbox 360 wireless racing wheel was less premium and was actually recalled for a rare defect where the AC-DC power brake would start smoking when powering the wheel. How many people smelt burning rubber while they were playing a game and just figured it's a hallucination of the track? Whoa, this wheel has smell-o-vision. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that 3D, that wireless racing wheel. It was, I think we had one actually when I was in college, and it was a piece of uh, inferior technology. I'll say that. Okay, so we've been comparing these two games, but Gran Turismo 5 actually wouldn't come out until three years after Forza 2. In fact, Forza 1, 2, and 3 all came out between the release of Gran Turismo 4 in 2004 and Gran Turismo 5 in 2010. Dang. If you're good at math, you would already know that that was a six-year gap massive for such a successful franchise. Kazunori Yamauchi was not a man to be rushed. Like the first Gran Turismo. Don't don't rush. You don't do it. He does not like to hear, let's go. <laughs> You're going to regret it. <laughs> like the first Gran Turismo for the original PlayStation, this gave GT5 the advantage of being released closer to the end of the console's life cycle, enabling it to take advantage of its fully matured technical capabilities. Mm -hmm. And I think that gives it like that. The, the longer lapses between releases has always made Gran Turismo more special to me in that way. Mm hmm. Because they keep pumping out the Forzas. And, you know, most of them, most of the Forzas are really good. But still, it's like when when Disney didn't own Star Wars and they'd come mm -hmm. out like every like five years or whatever. Mm -hmm. It just felt super special. Yeah, it's difference between like like Drake puts out like 25 albums a year. Right. And Versus like Kendrick. Kendrick. Yeah, perfect. Given that it had leapfrogged not one, but three Forza titles, and that its development had taken longer than any other game in the franchise, what made GT5 worth the wait? Like Forza 3, its most notable upgrades were related to the higher level of computing power offered by its 7th generation console. Each car now had a damage model, with cars capable of flipping and rolling over in a physically realistic way. Instead of every upgrade essentially making your car better, it was now possible to overpower your car. You had to strategically balance your upgrades for both speed and handling the same way you do in real life. Essentially, the game now made it possible for racing to be as hard as it was in real life, if you wanted it to be. I've definitely overpowered a car in Forza Horizon 4. I think I have a Miata that has like 600 horsepower or something, and it's not fun to drive. Gran Turismo had finally caught up to Xbox in terms of another increasingly important feature, online racing. And the game now allowed for online races with as many as 16 drivers. Although the game was critiqued for limited variety in terms of the kind of competitions you could set up online. As always, racing games followed larger trends in the video game and car culture worlds. The popularity of open world games led Microsoft to develop the Forza Horizon series, in which players explore and race through an open world. The Need for Speed franchise has more recently explored scripted games with action set pieces that seem to be heavily inspired by the Fast and the Furious film series. Mm. There's Dirt for Rallycross, Ride for Motorcycle Racing, and even American Truck Simulator for simulating American trucks. <laughs> the list is endless, and there are literally hundreds of games that we don't have time to mention. We don't have the time. Many of the games we've covered were now multi-title franchises built by entire office buildings full of programmers, developers, and marketing gurus. 
the video game industry was a billion dollar industry and all the racing games of the 2000 era had huge financial backing behind them. It's interesting then that in the 2000s, which were in some ways the peak of AAA racing titles, also saw the rise of indie gaming. Games that were, like in the early days of gaming, made by small teams of developers or even a single person. With the increasing viability of online distribution for video games with services like Steam, it became possible for these indie developers to turn their small-scale games into big hits. They no longer had to vie for shelf space to sell their software. The ultimate example of this revolution in gaming is Minecraft, which was released in 2011 before going on to sell 200 million copies. Wow. I remember playing Minecraft on the free browser version with me and my buddies. Pretty, pretty fun. Given all this, it's unusual that the racing genre, usually at the cutting edge of the video game world, largely missed out on the indie game revolution of the 2000s. Why was this the case? Well, for one, when people race virtual cars, they generally want them to be cars they know from real life, and licensing is extremely expensive and impractical for an indie developer. Secondly, realistic racing also requires incredibly detailed physics that are fine-tuned and compared to real-life counterparts by people with real racing expertise. Millions of dollars in R&D are spent just to make the game feel real. That does leave room for arcade racing, but after gamers had a taste of what games like Gran Turismo and Forza had to offer, their expectations were significantly higher than the 80s and 90s era of simpler racing games. Perhaps the closest thing to a successful racing indie game was 2015's Project Cars for PS4, Xbox One, and Windows, developed by Slightly Mad Studios. Although the game did find a major publisher in Bandai Namco, it was financed through a crowdfunding campaign that raised $5 million. This was a huge deal at the time. I remember this. The game featured 74 cars, only 23 of which were real. And while tracks were based on real-life locations, they had to have code names since developers couldn't get the rights to the real locations. The game did well enough to inspire two sequels, although they received mixed reviews. I really liked Project Cars 2. I thought it was like some of the best driving physics that I've experienced. It was like too realistic. I like you could tell that 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 game was like made by people who really love cars and racing. It was mm -hmm. it yeah. was it felt just different. It was cool. And then the third one, I've heard a lot of bad things about. So I, I which I don't know. Um, yeah, cool. I've got a question regarding like copyright laws when they come to tracks. Like. Uh -huh. You've come to the right place. <laughs> yeah, welcome to welcome to Pumphrey uh, Sykes. Um, Pumphrey Sykes and Weber. You're not the you're not a partner. If you if you came to ask us questions, we could just be a very disorganized <laughs> law firm. Maybe we add trainees to the the marquee. International track law. So if I if I designed a game that had Laguna Seca like down to the the foot of track i don't know how the the rights would work for that i would i would assume that they own the rights to the track like the track owns the right to themselves you know I, d I don't know but could you change like one stretch of it and get away with it call it swamp swamp lagoon track swamp lagoon track yeah yeah i don't know how that works <laughs> balloon us <-a> <laughs> balloon us magma magma We'll get back to more past guests, but right now, a word from our sponsors. 
Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie. And we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now, we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie. And we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Popular path for indie racing games seems to be nostalgia. For instance, Road Redemption was marketed as a spiritual successor to the 90s electronic arts franchise Road Rash, baby. Hell yeah. Road Redemption and Road Rash before it is best described as a motorcycle racing game with weapons. Yeah, I used to play it all the time at my house. Yeah, it's pretty uh, pretty accurate. It's great. <laughs> I love Road Rash. It's fun. It holds up surprisingly well, too. Another mm-hmm. recent retro title is Hot Shot Racing, which brings back the neon color palette of games like OutRun. I've never played Road Redemption, but kind of want to know. And Hot Shot has gotten a lot of really great reviews. I also want to check that out. Hot Shot seems pretty fun. You know what also looks fun? Dirt 5, available now. Can you get it on PlayStation 4? Yes. Can you get it on X-Bone? Yes. Can you get it on PlayStation 5? Yes. Can you get it on Xbox Series S XTV? TV tuned. Yes. Can you get it on PC? Yes. Can I get it on my VTech uh, console? You can get it on Virtua Boy. <laughs> Unfortunately, there is no Leapfrog uh, version yet. Uh, they're working on that. But yeah, uh, the game is awesome. Can you get it on 3DO? Well, with a price tag of like $1,200 for that console, you better. They sold 2 million uh, units of 3DOs. That's, That's a lot insane. of moolah. With AAA titles churning out regular and increasingly predictable releases and indie racing games constrained by the technical and financial demands of the genre, where else could racing game enthusiasts turn for their virtual fix? The answer takes us all the way back to the beginning of this episode. 
and the virtual Grand Prix at Albert Park. The event took place within the game F1 2019 by the British company Codemasters, who also made Dirt, which is out now, starring me and Nolan and Nolan North. And And Troy. Troy Baker, baby. For the biggest names in video games. Two Nolans for the price of one. Codemasters makes really good games. I, Mm -hmm. I would put my money on it being a really good game. Codemasters F1 2019 was the 12th installment of the simulator and included all 21 F1 circuits. Since the April race, they've also released F1 2020. The franchise had come a long way since Codemasters' first entry in the series, F1 2009, which was criticized as looking like a dog's dinner, that's, in the words of Nintendo. Mag- looks like a <laughs> dog's dinner. That's pretty harsh. I didn't realize Nintendo Magazine was so cutting. Yeah. They're some of the harshest critics in in the biz. Mario writes all of them. <laughs> <laughs> it's another good game. It looks like a dog's a dinner. <laughs> I'm going to win. The F1 series of games is faithful to the increasing emergence of a genre that some have dubbed Simcade games like Gran Turismo and Forza, which tried to strike a balance between realism and fun to reach a wider demographic. But what about the hardcore Sims? What about them, baby? That's my realm. Yeah. After all, while we've established that there wasn't much room for indie in racing games, one has to wonder how much cash Codemasters is forking over for that yearly F1 license. But there was room for niche, specifically the niche of realism above all. I don't want to have fun with these games. I want it to be realistic. (laughs) I want to get yelled at by Toto Wolf. I want... Gunther Steiner to call me a a, a, a wanker. <laughs> now, as we've discussed, hardcore sims have been around for almost as long as racing games themselves, starting with 80s titles like Pole Position, Indianapolis 500, The Simulator, before moving into the 90s with games like NASCAR Racing and IndyCar Racing. Of course, Gran Turismo's release in 1997 turned things upside down. One of the most engaging and addictive games could now be universally considered the most realistic as well. So that history in mind, it makes sense that the 2000s brought out the golden era of sim racing. The game that more than any other heralded its arrival was R-Factor, a 2001 game from a company called Image Space Incorporated. Image Space had cut their teeth on licensed F1 games, starting with F1 2000 for Windows before moving on to develop NASCAR Thunder 2003 with EA. But R-Factor was a wholly different kind of game. Its in-game physics engine the Easy Motor 2 was an evolved version of the engine that ISI had developed for their earlier games. But instead of focusing on a single racing category, R-Factor, like Gran Turismo before it, aimed to allow for simulated racing across a variety of vehicle types. The main departure from Gran Turismo was its deep customizability, allowing players to add countless third-party mods to build on available tracks and cars, but also to improve the physics and realism within the game. If Gran Turismo and Forza at the time were taking increased advantage of cloud computing, R-Factor was taking it a step further, treating its players' combined ingenuity like a massive decentralized brain to improve the game. Oh. If R-Factor was the Wikipedia of sim racing, letting anyone make edits and improvements 2008's iRacing was the Apple Computers, a tightly controlled ecosystem that was, although still technically a game, offered as a monthly subscription service. Uh, Like R-Factor, iRacing had an impressive racing sim pedigree. Its creator, David Kamer, 
had also founded Papyrus, the company behind the OG <laughs> Papyrus. 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 <laughs> Papyrus. Papyrus. Uh, Papyrus was the company no. behind the Papyrus. <laughs> Papyrus was the company behind the OG <laughs> no. 1989 Indianapolis 500 The Simulator and a dozen NASCAR branded games throughout the 90s and early 2000s. That makes a lot of sense. Paying the monthly fee for iRacing gets you access to the servers where regular racing events and tournaments are held. That's kind of, they were kind of ahead of the game, no pun intended, but I feel like everything, <laughs> everything is a subscription service now. Like I yeah, can get it's a pain in the like watches. Why would you want a monthly watch <laughs> delivered to your, you don't need 12 watches a year. Hey, hey, hey Joe, uh, monthly watch subscription box is a proud sponsor of Pass Gas. I, I don't want you to, yeah, to man, denigrate don't, them. Don't, don't ruin I, our monthly watch relationship. I can't talk about anything now. For just $70 a month, you can get three premium watches delivered direct <laughs> to your door. If you don't like them, guys, you can send them right back with the, with a, uh, no fees attached. And these watches just, are heavy. These are some of the heaviest watches you've ever put on your wrist. Each watch You're, weighs close to four pounds. You better put it on your left arm because that bicep is going to grow before you know it. So. And act now and you get a free small axe with every watch. Oh, yeah, wow. also <laughs> is that a tuna can? <laughs> it's my watch. <laughs> we'll be right back with more of this story. But first, a word from our sponsors. Passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has got you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. <laughs> get it? With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Big thanks to NASCAR for sponsoring this episode of Pass Gas. Netflix's newest docuseries, NASCAR Full Speed, follows drivers as they battle for one of the biggest titles in all of motorsports during the 2023 NASCAR playoffs. Get an in-depth look at who these drivers are off the track and how they and their teams navigate the physical, mental, and emotional challenges of competing for a championship at the world's highest level of stock car racing. After all, the race to the finish is just the beginning. Watch NASCAR full speed on Netflix to catch up on the characters, competition, and chaos that define the 2023 championship before NASCAR heads to Atlanta this Sunday, February 25th at 3 p.m. Eastern Time on Fox. If it isn't already clear, iRacing is not for the casual gamer. It's for serious sim boys like Nolan. <laughs> Membership alone is $13 a month. Although there are a certain number of tracks and vehicles included with the membership, each additional track and vehicle requires the purchase of an individual license by the consumer. Yeah. How many cars do you have, Nolan? Uh, oh, yeah, we started this series with... Uh me talking about how much money I spent on iRacing. I have a, a fair amount of cars now. I don't have all of them because that would be very expensive. Do you have a hundred? 
No. No. Oh, no. <laughs> How much does no. one car cost? 12 to $15. Yeah, about about that much. That's just enough to be, you know, like, I, I'm like, that's like a lunch. I could eat in and, yeah. and buy a car. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, like, iRacing is, like, broken into into seasons. Every quarter of the year is a season mm-hmm. where they have all the all the races scheduled for every week. Oh, and cool. uh, the previous season, when I renewed my subscription... Like I was just going, I was going a little too ham with buying the cars. <laughs> like anytime one of my buddies from like Twitter was like, Hey, you want to race? I was like, yeah, I'd buy a car on a track. I spent way too much money. Not like a, not like a, not like an absurd amount that would ruin my life, but like an amount where I'm like, Oh, that's, I got to put a curb on that before it gets out of hand. And this season I've been a lot more responsible only buying tracks when I absolutely need them. Cause I am trying to uh, win my division in the SimLab uh, series. So I'm being a lot more prudent about my spending this this quarter, this season. But I, I will say it can get expensive. This is for serious people. But it's also very fun and rewarding because the ranking system is really good. Uh, yeah. So if you wanted to get everything, uh, it would cost $1,500-ish. Wow. <laughs> and that's not including the monthly membership. I am nowhere near $1,500. So what do you get for an amount of money that is approaching the cost of an actual terrible car? Well, for <laughs> one, iRacing's attention to detail is second to none. Okay? Second to none. To create their tracks, they use a 360-degree laser scanner to measure the real-life track down to every pothole and bump. Each individual track takes 10 graphic artists to create over a six-month period. Wow iRacing also offers an additional degree of realism completely separate from its digital attention to detail in the form of a 44-page rule book. Sounds fun. That, <laughs> uh, all its virtual racers must adhere to. In order to race, you must earn a license in each category. It's fun. Mm-hmm. When you join the game, you start as a rookie. And also, you need to put in a certain amount of training hours to even enter your first event. You know what, though? In <laughs> Gran Turismo, I really like getting my like license. License, yeah. That's a pretty fun aspect of it. And once you pass through iRacing's many hoops, you're still tightly regulated. No one loves being tightly regulated. Each driver has an active safety record that must be maintained to continue racing. The iRacing service automatically tracks incidents where cars collide, too many of these, and you'll be disqualified from the race. If you think all the way back to the test popular science ran, comparing Forza to real life and showing how the amateur driver drove much more aggressively in the virtual world, iRacing took a step towards closing that gap. Although we'll never be able to replicate the danger of real life racing, unless unless it can, some shock belts and stuff. <laughs> or like a uh, you know matrix thing in the back of the, your head. Yeah. That- Mm-hmm. Yeah, a weird sharp thing that goes into your brain. <laughs> yeah, and you're just like, oh, he wrecked. Boop. He's dead. Uh, yep. Your son is dead. He was a bad, God. he was not a good boy. He was a bad boy. He didn't adhere to our rules. <clears throat> he didn't adhere to our 44 pages of rules. <laughs> I wish more people did adhere to those because there's some real idiots on the service, including myself. Yeah, and by implementing these strict rules and indirectly by making the experience expensive enough that only the most hardcore will participate. iRacing rookies, as they're called, often report feeling nerves just as if they were racing at a real-life event. That don't-mess-up factor that's so important in real-life racing has been recreated 
virtually. It it sounds silly, uh, but you act, you really do get at least in the beginning uh, very nervous for events because it's not like other racing games where you can just hop into a lobby and start racing right away. The races are scheduled out like over the course of the day, usually like once every hour. So and people are paying for the subscription service. So uh, people practice on these tracks with their cars. They get their cars dialed in. They like I I'll probably before doing a new track I'll spend at least an hour um like practicing on it before i like really hop even hop into a race dial in the car make sure it's good there's a lot of time investment so you don't want to like ruin someone's race in the first lap you Mm -hmm. know so there is like your heart does start like beating pretty hard but do Um, those people the people that are kind of don't disregard rules and stuff don't they get kicked out uh you can what you can do is uh if it's an especially egregious move not just like a racing incident you can report them you can file a uh, a protest, and if they get enough protests, they act, they can be banned from iRacing. And usually, those people uh, get filtered down to the bottom splits. So, like, if there's like a hundred people that sign up for a certain race, it'll usually get divided into like five different skill splits. You know? Yeah. Uh, it's usually not as bad in the in the top splits, but in the bottom ones, that's just where like just the worst drivers they all have to race against each other. And you can, <laughs> like, it's pretty funny. You can. You can eventually advance out of those splits just by beating those people and uh, the aforementioned licenses that you talked about. It's not like you have to take tests or anything like that. It's just like licenses are determined by safety ratings. So if you're a really safe driver, you can start moving up in the safety ratings and that you can start driving faster and faster cars. Um, But you can also lose safety ratings and be demoted back down to the lower classes. So it kind of balances itself out. There's been some more criticism in the system lately because a lot more people have been joining during quarantine, of course. But I think it'll kind of even out again and things will go back to kind of normal. Yeah. Dang, dude, you should you should uh, be a voice in iRacing. <laughs> I really I really like iRacing a lot. It's a lot of fun. As virtual racing continues to get closer and closer to the real thing, real life racing also shows signs that it's becoming more like a game. Maybe the clearest example of this is attack mode in Formula E, the FIA's all-electric racing series. Attack mode, quote, raises a driver's power level from 200 kilowatts to 225 kilowatts once they have traveled through an off-racing line activation zone. Kind of a gimmick, in my opinion. In other words, a boost zone off the main racing line that encourages drivers to attempt overtakes. When the driver is in attack mode, the halo on the cockpit changes color to blue. There's like LEDs on it. Formula E also implemented something called fan boost activation. Five drivers who win a social media vote receive an extra boost of power to be used at the team's discretion. When the driver activates fan boost, the halo glows magenta, which is actually pretty sick to see. With these kinds of developments, the future of racing and the future of games increasingly seems one and the same. Could we see leagues with a mix of virtual and real events? Could real-life racing see additions like augmented reality, like Mario Kart, but in the real world? And beyond racing wheels and pedals, how will in-home technology like 3D screens and, more importantly, VR goggles change racing games as the tech becomes more viable? Whatever the future holds, it's clear that the lines that once separated racing games from reality are not merely blurring, they're disappearing altogether. I think VR is a huge thing. Uh, a lot of people use that. I, I'd like to get a VR headset because the immersion would be really cool. I've raced with VR before. It's a, it's a lot of fun. It makes me sick. It, I can only do it for like five minutes. We we did a VR goggles and drove a real car. Yeah, that was weird. 
was, um, <laughs> that did make me that made me sick as well um but i think if anything the biggest contribution that racing games can have to racing overall is getting getting people that wouldn't otherwise have a shot at getting in a race car uh get their chance just like with like gt academy and iRacing and all those other things there's increasingly more and more drivers getting uh picked up by teams that have no experience besides being in their bedroom just putting in monster hours on the simulator i think that's probably the the greatest contribution that at least sim games can have as well as giving pros the chance to practice a lot more on tracks that they're unfamiliar with which mm -hmm. nascar drivers had to do a lot this season i'm really excited like i've said it a million times before i'm excited about how like basically up until this point in order to be a professional race car driver you need to have a dad that's rich uh -huh. and is just willing to just spend all of his time on your racing career and i think like this is really going to close the gap on who can become a race car driver i sure. agree i think it's super cool flatten flatten the earth no joe no fatten the earth the earth, no, the is, earth fat. is fat with a ph <laughs> big fat, fat earth big old butt on big that old, earth big old booty Just on a, that earth i uh, love a good earth booty Thank you for listening to Pass Gas. As always, uh, big shout out to Ryan, who I met last night at uh, uh, Adams Motorsport Park at Drift Night. Big listener, big fan of the show. Ryan, Ryan let's go. What's up? Let's go, Ryan. I love hearing that people love the show because we love doing this. And uh, yeah, thanks for thanks for listening, guys. Tell tell a friend about Pass Gas. If you have someone who you think would uh, like the show, let them know. Let them know. If you'd like to see us on other podcasts. <laughs> Let us know which ones. Give us a good rating on your podcast platform of your choice. Like this video if you're watching it online. Follow the boys at Joe G. Weber, at James Pumphrey, myself, at Nolan J. Sykes. Follow Donut Media. All that good stuff. Thank you again to our sponsors this week. Be kind. Let's go! Let's go! See you next time. <laughs>
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.